Welcome back to Words with Women. Today was joined with Sarah Keys, a principal at ESG Global Advisors. Welcome back, Sarah. Thank you. And we're also joined by Iman, who is back with us again. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. So today we'll be talking about sustainability, and I'm super excited for this episode. So I guess to get started, uh, I would like to know more about your journey, Sarah. So how has your involvement and passion for sustainability started? Great, and thanks so much for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so my passion for sustainability started when I was completing my undergraduate degree in commerce at McGill University. So I was taking a course in my third year as part of my Bachelor of Commerce called The Social Context of Business. And it really exposed me to a number of the environmental and social challenges uh, created by the historical version of capitalism. And as part of that course, I began to reflect and I asked myself whether I wanted to be part of the problem or part of the solution. And at the time I was studying to become a professional accountant, uh, a career path I did indeed pursue uh, and followed. But I also felt there was a huge opportunity for the accounting profession to do more in this area. In particular, helping businesses to uncover and understand the risks, opportunities, costs, and benefits of adopting more sustainable business practices. At the time, I really reflected that the current version of financial statements really wasn't capturing what previously was called externalities, these intangible factors that do indeed impact companies' value over the long term. And I'm also a big believer that we need to work within the systems that we've got. Uh, because sustainability issues are so urgent and pressing, I feel strongly that we don't have time to replace old systems with new ones. And in fact, we should really be harnessing the systems we already have in place uh, to achieve long-term financial returns, but also achieve better outcomes from an environment and societal perspective. So I strongly believe in harnessing the power and innovation of capitalism to respond to some of these big global issues, including climate change. And that's been a particular area of focus for me. And so that's a big part of why I actually chose to continue down the path and become a professional accountant. Uh, I realized there was a huge opportunity for CPAs to actually understand and assess and evaluate and report on sustainability factors. And that's really been uh, the start of my journey and certainly something that I use every single day in my job now as a consultant for companies and investors. That's definitely amazing to hear. I mean, thinking about accountants like before uh, or specifically like at school, you wouldn't really associate that with like ESG or any of like the sustainability issues, but um, it, it's great to hear and like see how it's shifting right now and changing. And we hear a lot about climate change, global warming, and we typically tend to like confuse the two or think it's the same. Um, I myself, I really tend to confuse them at first. So what is climate change and how is it impacting us? It's a, it's a great question. And so, as I mentioned, while I do work in the broader sustainability space, uh, my specialty, my focus area, and a deep passion of mine is the issue of climate change. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of the terminology has been confusing over the years. Uh, it was definitely, you know, first talked about as global warming. Um, and I think, the, you know, that term confused a lot of people in particular, um, you know, the, the argument would often be from the climate change deniers, well, it's pretty cold out today. Uh, <laughs> and so how can global warming be happening? And so the phrase climate change is uh, far more commonly used today to talk about uh, the variations in our weather patterns 
and in uh, you know what we've seen historically as compared to what we're experiencing today as a result of an increased uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, which are indeed human made. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, just the current state of where we're at on climate change. I think it's super important context uh, for all of your listeners. And as I said, because it's a passion of mine, I really wanna convey just the urgency of this issue as well as the scale and pace of change required to combat it. Definitely. So, so climate change poses an existential threat to the future of humanity. And while that may sound strong, uh, that message has been echoed not only by environmentalists and scientists around the world, uh, but increasingly by large financial institutions, as well as big regulators in the United States, including the Securities Exchange Commission and the treasurer of uh, the Biden administration, Janet Yellen. So I'm not the only one to think uh, it is an existential threat to the future of humanity. And it's an ur urgent problem. And what's perhaps so wicked about this problem is it requires global collective action to address it. So as much as the three of us on this conversation might wanna solve this problem, we all need to be working together. Sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like the current global pandemic we find ourselves in, yeah. and I'm gonna come back to that point. Uh, so if we wait until we're starting to experience some of the more severe impacts of climate change in the form of extreme weather or the slow onset temperature rise that we've been uh, experiencing since the pre-industrial age, it will be too late. And that's because greenhouse gas emissions, as we emit them into the atmosphere, there's a delay between when we actually emit them and when the warming occurs and when we experience the impacts. So the scale of the challenge is significant and the capital investment required to transition the whole economy around the world to low carbon is substantial. So I don't wanna understate that. But there's also a huge opportunity to make big improvements in the overall quality of life, both in developed and developing countries by addressing climate change in a thoughtful way through well-designed policies and regulations that reward companies and investors for providing capital toward making a just transition that is inclusive of all members of our society. And the Paris Agreement set the goal of limiting global warming to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century with a stretch goal to limit it to 1.5 degrees. And this is all based on the best available science uh, from the global scientific community around the tipping point for global warming. And ultimately the trend is clear. We need to act with urgency to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement because as of 2020, we've already caused about 1.1 degrees of global warming. And if we want to achieve uh, 1.5 degrees, we have to get moving very, very quickly in the next decade. So the 2020s have been called the decade of action. And we are indeed starting to see this amidst the global pandemic. And I'll come back to this point. Uh, but what I think is really, really important is we're also starting to experience the extreme weather events. And we're starting to see what has happened as a result of this 1.1 degrees of warming. So in 2020, severe weather cost $2.4 billion in, in insured damages in Canada alone, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada. And notably, 2020 has now been ranked as the fourth highest in insured losses since 1983. So we are starting to see significant numbers. Uh, for example, global losses from natural disasters this year in 2020 hit $270 billion. So of course, this is getting attention from insurers, investors, businesses, and policymakers, but also from governments uh, who don't want to see the uh, runaway climate change causing severe economic impacts. 
And so we're seeing both a focus now on adapting to some of these physical impacts and building resilience in our systems, as well as the need to respond through reducing greenhouse gas emissions and striving to limit global warming to that 1.5 degree threshold. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, it's really important to use like all these facts to back those points up because we often see a lot of people not, not really believing uh, climate change or the effects because it's not directly impacting us. We see these pictures like all these pictures with a plastic in the ocean or smog filling up the air as we can't see the stars. We all know that, but we often don't take action on that because it's not impacting us directly. But um, why do you think companies and people tend to refuse to believe in climate change, especially when there's so much science behind it and there's so many effects that we see in our daily lives? So I love this question because as you might imagine, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, uh, being passionate about the issue of climate change and having devoted uh, my career to combating this issue. Um, so I guess first and foremost, as someone who's been working in this space for about a decade, um, I have had my fair share of both very senior, educated, intelligent, well-spoken professionals tell me that climate change is not real, as well as everyday friends and family uh, that you meet across, across your life. And what I will say is the pace of change around climate change since the pandemic hit is incredible as someone who's been working in the space for a decade. Um, so today it is significantly less common to hear of companies or individuals who don't believe in the science of human caused climate change associated with greenhouse gas emissions. That used to be a battle I had to fight. And my main way to address it was exactly that, uh, providing those statistics that I've just shown. Now, perhaps the sad part is that part of the reason we've seen this shift in perspective is because we are experiencing more and more of those extreme weather events which means there's been a, a lot of surveys done to show after a community, a localized community experiences something like a severe hurricane or drought, uh, any sort of extreme weather event, wildfires, for example, uh, yeah. the awareness of and belief in the science of climate change rapidly increases immediately after the event. So to your point, as soon as they've been personally impacted, they realize this is something that is very real. But secondly, their support for government action and policy to address it also increases. So uh, a silver lining of the fact that some of those statistics I shared earlier, uh, we are experiencing the financial costs and the real human consequences of extreme weather events, such as people being um, lifted from their homes and their communities indefinitely. You know, a lot of people investing in their homes as their retirement assets this can be devastating and have significant psychological consequences as well. So it's a lot less common nowadays as a result of the extreme weather. But I do want to point out something else. And this is just something I find really a fascinating conversation, which is that the denial of climate change is kind of a human psychological response because it's so overwhelmingly big. It's so long term that to your point, it feels intangible in our daily lives. And in fact, a lot of the, the imp impacts and consequences are going to fall on generations that are only being born today or maybe haven't even been born yet. So there's also this issue of blame and finger pointing. Those who have profited from uh, the economic growth that has also been coupled with greenhouse gas emissions, uh, you know, they don't want to feel unfairly attacked for having made a living. And, I, you know, this resonates with me. These are not bad people. Um, and I think it's really important to keep in mind 
that you know, we need to bring everyone along and find common ground. This is a collective problem. So we're not going to be able to solve climate change in isolation by ignoring uh, those who deny it or don't want to address it or feel it's less important than today's economic issues, which of course are significant as we find ourselves in a global recession. So I think meeting people where they're at, um, having open and honest dialogue where we listen to understand and hear one another, where people can feel heard, I think is a really important human element to this conversation. Yeah, and to add on to your point um, of where we see like those uh, extreme weather events and stuff, um, I remember reading somewhere that, especially now because there's like glaciers uh, melting, there's so, so many different things that are happening that we're just not used to in the modern world. There's also new um, bacteria, new viruses that are showing up, which kind of, they don't mix, mix biologically with our system, with our what we have in the world today. So that's why we're seeing all these new viruses like coronavirus showing up. We're seeing those extreme weather events that we've never seen before in different parts of the world, which is really crazy to me. And I think, um, like you said, seeing all these events that are impacting more and more people, it's, it's easier to believe and uh, actually take action on. And, you know, you've raised such an important point. So, you know, I often get asked, what keeps me up at night as someone who knows a lot about the science of climate change and the predicted impacts. The thing that keeps me up at night is that if we go past 1.5 degrees of warming, the reason it would become catastrophic is we would hit certain tipping points, which I mentioned earlier. One of those is uh, the melting of permafrost in the north. And what's really scary about that is two things. First of all, there's millions of years of carbon stored in that permafrost that as it melts will be emitted and actually exacerbate and increase climate change and contribute to that global warming. And there are a number of diseases frozen in that permafrost that could cause additional global pandemics. And the link between climate change and the increased risk of pandemics has been proven uh, for quite some time. So, you know, I think now is the time to be addressing this issue as we start to realize what some of those impacts look like for us. Yeah, exactly. So I just wanted to, to add something because you mentioned that a lot of the people who will be impacted by global warming are not even born. And I remember someone told me this before and you just stuck with me. Um, how can someone think like this in the first place? But someone said, I don't really care to like act a lot about uh, climate change issues because by the times these consequences will be like deadly, we won't be alive anymore. Like the person won't be alive. So I don't really know if like you meet a lot of people or like, com like it's, if it's a common belief among like people who don't believe in climate change and like in the impact uh, that it has on the environment. But I just thought that's like an, an interesting take um, from someone to say um, about like the, the consequences of, of uh, climate change. Yeah, you know, I, I will say it's fascinating because I tend to work very much so in the capital markets and trying to explain and help companies make the link between uh, climate change and the impacts of their company's value. But of course, there's the reverse. There's the impact of the company on climate change. And it's really fascinating because what I'm often finding is the senior decision makers are far more experienced in their careers. Uh, in many cases, when I go in and present to a board of directors, the conversation certainly starts about all the statistics and the facts, the impacts of the company, but it almost always ends with a conversation about it being the right thing to do for their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren. And so I think where we can make human connections, yes, um, you know, some of the decision makers today who need to take some urgent action 
may not be around to experience the most significant impacts, but certainly their grandchildren will be. And I think that's something that increasingly uh, these decision makers are thinking about. Are there some common challenges that you're facing in the industry when dealing with investors and companies, like some points that keep coming up? Yes, absolutely. So I think I think there's really two big buckets and they're related. So the first one is a lack of a global framework for standardized reporting and metrics on uh, climate change, as well as broader sustainability issues. So environmental social governance, that ESG acronym. And, you know, as an accountant, uh, I often make the parallel that, you know, financial reporting standards were not always there. Uh, they actually evolved in a very similar way uh, to the trajectory we're seeing for sustainability reporting standards, uh, which means in the absence of a single global framework or standard, uh, what happens is a number of voluntary reporting frameworks have been developed to help fill this information gap between companies and investors and companies and their broader stakeholders, such as their employees, their communities, their customers, and so on. So some of the leading frameworks would be the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, the Global Reporting Initiative Standards, as well as increasingly the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Now, with all of these different frameworks, companies can't be blamed for feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Uh, they're trying to jump through these hoops, provide this information, but they're also trying to run a business and allocate their resources efficiently. And certainly their investors still want them to make a return. Um, so what's really fascinating, and particularly to me as an accountant, is uh, just recently the International Financial Reporting Standards, the IFRS Foundation, uh, led a consultation on whether they should establish a sustainability standards board that would run right alongside uh, financial reporting standards. And in response to an overwhelming amount of feedback supporting this, because that would be a very ideal entity to ride this kind of global perspective, they have indeed established that sustainability standards board. And what's really important here is they've committed to leveraging all of this great work that's been done by these voluntary frameworks and standards rather than reinventing the wheel because we simply don't have time for that. Uh, and they're actually focusing specifically on climate change as the first kind of pilot issue and looking to align with that TCFD framework that I mentioned earlier. But the second challenge is really where, you know, pardon the pun, but it's where the rubber hits the road is on data and methodologies. So even if companies and investors wanted to put their absolute best foot forward, really invest in this and do it right, there's still a lack of high quality data at the granularity required for businesses to make meaningful decisions. So we have kind of macro level forecasts, um, all sorts of fantastic modeling done around climate science and that forward looking view. But when we think about it, a company needs to be able to boil it right down to what does this mean for my vehicle fleet? What does this mean for this specific facility located in this specific region of the world? But the good news is we do see a lot of collaboration happening across the industry, insurers, banks, and institutional investors working together to address these complex data challenges. So I, I'm encouraged. So as like you're talking right now, I just thought about how it's like such a crucial thing to have data and like have access to it, not just for companies and investors, but also to individual investors and have access to it like easily to see if the company they're investing in is um, sustainable and not sustainable. And because myself, like I use Wealthsimple sometimes like for individual investing. And I was just checking right now if there's any feature or anything that 
I can see or check just to know how sustainable the company is or like what is their ESG goals and I can't really find it so it's I, like it seems like it's not as accessible to the public like to have these information and data to like be aware and make like conscious decisions when it comes to their investing or like even day-to-day life another fantastic observation and i think fundamentally there's a couple of things here so first of all the movement toward responsible investing historically has been by institutional investors meaning those who manage huge amounts of money on behalf of other large uh, investors. So they're money managers, right? They're the black rock of the world. But what we've seen during this pandemic is a record level of retail fund flows into ESG funds. So that's, you know, people like ourselves investing our RRSP dollars or our TFSA dollars into something where we feel like we want to make a positive impact. And so it's really quite fascinating because as we've seen this push both from institutional investors and now retail investors, there's a whole lot more scrutiny happening on, well, what exactly is in this fund? And all of us can definitely think back to an article or two where we've read about a fund that says it is ESG focused and employing a responsible investment lens and then has all sorts of uh, investments in that portfolio that one might not expect. So the CFA Institute in particular is working on creating a set of standards uh, that investors can use to articulate exactly what the different approaches they're employing are. Um, Because they do think there's a bit of a misconception around what responsible investment means. And I'm going to give you just the three buckets because I think it's probably useful for your listeners. Definitely. The first one is ESG integration. This is really what, when we hear about large investors like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, that's what they're using. They're using an ESG integration approach, which means they're not screening out any sectors based on values. Uh, They're trying to find the best in class ESG performers across every single sector they invest in. The next iteration is uh, socially responsible investing. And this is where you're starting to say, okay, Um, These types of investors say, well, there's certain sectors we just don't want to invest in from a purely ethical or values-based lens. Traditionally, this has been things like tobacco, controversial weapons, adult entertainment, um, but increasingly, the conversation is happening around fossil fuels and divestment. And so we see a number of, for example, university pension funds where students are saying, hey, hang on a second. And the professors are saying, hang on a second, we're not so comfortable with our investments being in fossil fuels. And we recognize that this may compromise our returns. We don't think it will, but we recognize that, but we wanna be aligned with our values in some way, shape or form. And this is a growing area in the pandemic. But the third area is perhaps the most interesting and growing rapidly, but from a very small base, but something to watch. And that's impact investing. And that's where you're actually saying, my top priority as an investor is to make a positive environmental or social impact. And I wanna make a return, but I am willing to compromise my return to make that positive impact. So what we often think of as impact investing or SRI as a retail investor, um, when we look at an ESG integrated fund, we might find things in there that we didn't expect. And that's part of why. So there's a number of standards coming out to try and uh, get rid of this kind of concept of greenwashing that's out there uh, to allow people to make more transparent and informed choices. Thank you for sharing that. Like I honestly... Myself, I never really knew the difference between like ESG integration or even socially responsible investing. So I think that's like a really crucial thing 
for our listeners or for myself, I was taking notes as you were talking. So something to keep in mind. But uh, we know that, and as you mentioned, like finances is, is a male-dominated field. So I was just curious, what role are women playing in this industry? And uh, especially when it comes to like sustainability and how, or is their attitude different than men um, when it comes to climate change and all these issues? I love this question. And in fact, as I was, you know, preparing for this podcast recording, I came across a very relevant and recent survey from RBC Wealth Management. So maybe I'm going to, I'm going to start there with giving you some of these interesting statistics that just came out. Um, So the findings of this study that were just published uh, this week, they're focused on the U.S., but I would say absolutely just as applicable uh, in Canada and perhaps even more in Europe. Uh, But interestingly, what they've found is that women are more than twice as likely as men to say it's extremely important that the companies they're going to invest in are integrating ESG factors into their policies and decisions. And what's quite interesting in addition to that is the survey also found that 74% of women are interested in increasing their share of ESG investments in their own portfolio. And they're significantly more likely than men to have an interest in learning more about ESG investing. And again, this is a study done by RBC Wealth Management. So very interesting to see that coming from an institutional investor publishing that kind of survey in the US, no less. But I also want to know kind of that bigger picture of what you're talking about and how their attitude is is a little bit different. Um, So I would say there are a disproportionate number of women working in sustainability. Uh, You'll often hear the comment that Um, It's an all-female panel at a conference or event, which is so rare. Uh, We often don't even see 50% representation, especially in capital markets, conferences, and and dialogues like that. So what's really cool about it is that women are holding a lot of senior leadership roles in particular. And, you know, just to give an anecdotal observation, um, my firm, ESG Global Advisors, was founded by a woman, and five of our six team members are women. And we often hear from our clients that they like that about us, uh, that we're uh, such a heavy female dominated team. And I think a lot of the top ESG leaders at large Canadian banks and pension funds are also women. You know, I'm thinking about RBC Global Asset Management, TD Bank, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, OMERS, the list goes on. I can think of a number of fabulous, hardworking, intelligent, women who are actually leading uh, the push here toward ESG integration within uh, banks, lenders, and insurers in Canada. So it's pretty exciting. Uh, And I did find a really interesting quote in this context. And I actually happen to know this this woman leader uh, who is a Canadian, but is based in Paris right now. And her name is Jane Ambixier. And she put out a quote recently that said, as sustainable finance roles raise in prominence, so too do many of the women who occupy them. It's a bit of a fast track to get women into more influential positions as more people realize connecting finance with the real economy is a critical issue. So I think Jane said it better than I ever did. That's a really good quote. And I think it's so um, cool to see like women empowering each other, especially in this issue of climate change and working towards this action. So that's really great to hear. But often, um, especially as a student, like I see there's not a lot of opportunities to actually get in this field and make a career out of it. And it's great to see that you have created a career out of this because like, you can take your passion and, and work towards it. But do you have any advice for new graduates or students who want to pursue a career dedicated to this issue? 
I mean, I am privileged to speak to a lot of student groups and whether that's at conferences of clubs and events of, of undergraduate programs or directly within undergraduate and master's level programs. And first of all, I'm incredibly inspired by the commitment to and desire for a career in sustainability. Um, it makes me feel very hopeful and optimistic for the future. Um, so I have two big pieces of advice because I get asked this question all the time. Um, so the first one is network, network, network. Uh, this is a space that I think, you know, I know that networking is a little bit intimidating, especially when you're coming out of schools, trying to get your footing in your career. It's kind of something we've never really been taught uh, explicitly. It can be a little awkward. It's a little bit challenging, a little bit scary, especially for those who are a little bit more introverted. But what I would say about the sustainability space is the really cool thing about it is you've already got something in common you've already got some shared values. And it's probably one of my favorite parts of working in the space is when people are working in sustainability or sustainable finance, chances are we have a whole lot more in common in terms of the things we like to do or like an affinity for animals or an interest in nature. So there's tons of things you can kind of connect on personally. But I really feel like using the fact that there's a common passion to connect with other people is an incredible way to kind of take away some of those fears of networking. But the other thing is because everyone's so passionate, we all recognize that a rising tide lifts all boats. And so people are much more, I think, willing and interested to respond to a cold call, an email, a connection request on LinkedIn. And I really think that the networking opportunities in the virtual environment are even greater. So I would always encourage uh, new grads to really reach out because you know now geographical location, you don't have to ask them to go for a coffee, you can have a virtual coffee. And that's become so much more normal. But the second piece of advice, and it goes together, is try to stay as current as you can on the latest trends and developments. This space is moving incredibly quickly and it is so important to keep up. Not only that, but it gives you a bit of a lens into where some of the growth areas are. So as I mentioned, you know, talking about ESG integration versus SRI versus impact, I think impact investing is poised to grow. Um, so watching some of those trends actually helps you identify where the careers of the future might be. But it also gives you something to talk about as part of your networking efforts. That tends to be a huge piece of the value add you can bring to conversations is being really up to date and asking thoughtful questions when you do get those meetings or virtual coffees uh, with people you'd like to learn from. Thank you. I think that's, uh, that's really amazing advice. And as you said, since you have a, sh a shared uh, passion for something, it would, make easy, it would make it easy to make that connection and talk to the person um, because you already have like some common ground to work on. So we only have one question before we move to the rapid three, two, one. And my question is, what are some of, the, some of the practical steps that everyone can take in their daily lives to make an impact? What are things that um, we can do in our day-to-day -day, um, on our sides as well? And what are also some of the resources that we can look at or where, where we can see these stats or uh, things to keep uh, on top of everything and informed? Absolutely. So I'm going to talk first about just some of these practical steps. So uh, our individual and choices are critically important. One person can make a difference because I truly believe that large scale change requires a whole bunch of really small changes as individuals. Three areas I see for us as individuals uh, to make some changes and take some practical steps. Uh, the first one is where we choose to work. 
The second one is what we choose to purchase as consumers. And the third one is what we choose to invest in. So I'll talk just very briefly about each. So the first one, millennials, myself included, as well as Generation Z and the ones to come thereafter, are increasingly choosing employers that align with their values. This is a significant shift that companies are paying very close attention to. They recognize that their ability to attract and retain strong talent is now being linked with their perceived contribution to climate change and sustainability issues. So keep with it, keep asking those questions in interviews, keep looking it up on the company website, um, keep seeking to work for companies that align with your values because collectively we're pushing companies to up their game. The second one is keep in mind that we are voting with our dollars when we choose to buy from companies. Nothing gets a business's attention more than losing revenue or customer brand loyalty. On the flip side, they also see this as a huge opportunity where companies acting on climate change and sustainability issues also see the potential to attract new customers and get a boost to their revenue or increase their brand and customer loyalty. So always remember you're voting with your dollars every purchasing decision you make. And of course the last one, and we've talked briefly about it, is that our RRSPs and TFSAs, no matter how small your savings are, can be a significant source of your own personal carbon footprint. In fact, they're probably the largest source of all of our carbon footprints are the emissions we're financing with our investment portfolios. And so choosing to invest in ESG focused funds, including as we chatted about impact funds, if that's something that you really feel like you wanna make a positive environmental or social benefit, these are ways you can put your money to work to affect positive change. So I think those are the three key practical steps. And in terms of some of the things I think you should take a look at to keep up to date, all sorts of interesting newsletters, but a couple of my favorites would be the Responsible Investment Association uh, does a monthly newsletter. They have a roundup of uh, all sorts of new regulations, policies, viewpoints, and job opportunities, which of course is fun and interesting for undergrads. Um, as well, I think any of the industry associations, if you're thinking about pursuing a, a professional designation similar to how I did, the CPA, the CFA, um, increasingly they're all putting out a ton of thought leadership on how one can utilize uh, their professional background in this new and emerging space. And then of course, just staying up to date on your Google alerts. I love Google alerts, set them for the topics that you're interested in and uh, monitor it regularly. I will say it is time consuming, but that's a good problem to have because that just means we're building momentum. Oh, those, those are such great points. And I think I'm gonna look into some of them because I'm always looking for those newsletters or whatnot to, to actually check up on. Um, so those are, those are great. And I hope our listeners will take action on that too. Definitely. Thank you so much for all this. Like, I feel that I'm going to do a lot of due diligence after our episode today. Just go look over my investments, check all the newsletters. <laughs> so uh, moving on to the rapid three, two, one. So we have three questions. The first question will have three word answer. The second one will have a two word answer. And the last one will have a one word answer. So for the first question, what are the three values that got you where you are today? Resilience, passion, tenacity. Perfect. And for the second question, what are the two things that make you feel motivated or inspired? So when things are not going well, what are the two things that keep you uh, grounded? Passion of youth. Okay. I'm going to put that as my one, one answer. It's one, one word. <laughs> and for the last question, what is the one skill that you think is important in all aspects of life? If you have to pick one skill, what would it be? 
Humility. So conducting oneself with humility, recognizing no one of us has all the answers nor the power to change the world. We have to work together. Thank you so much. These are amazing responses. And I really, really enjoyed this episode today. Uh, thank you for joining us again. And uh, yeah, thank My you. Pleasure. Thank okay. you for having me.